0: Welcome to the Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer, and as always, I'm joined by my erstwhile colleague. Erswell, what does erstwhile mean, Paul? Or I think it former?
2: means uh, learned, it, uh, but I'll I'll take any uh, other... I um... think it
0: might mean former, like an yeah. erstwhile colleague. Anyway, my colleague Paul Rickard is here, as always. How are you, Paul?
2: I'm good, thanks, Peter. Into week four of the lockdown. I think we've just passed into week... This yeah. is the fourth week. Already, we've got um, yeah, people like the... Uh, National Rugby League uh, saying that they're coming back at the end of May. Go the Leagues. Uh, go the Leagues, And I think a lot of people are sitting there at home saying, <laughs> when do you let us out? Yeah, <laughs> <You right. know? laughs>
0: they want day release at least. Anyway, so today's program, of course, is all coronavirus. You can't, you can't escape coronavirus.
2: I wish the ABC could do something apart from coronavirus. The, I, am, I am sick and tired are of Are they it scaring it.
0: the pants off of you every night? Well, they, the do, rates, they do. That's all rates, they do the want rates. to do
2: scare, scare the pants off. They're a scary organisation. <laughs> <but>, um, <laughs> <laughs> they went very quiet last week when uh, George Pell was um, uh, yeah. was uh, acquitted, I should say. Yeah. Not, didn't want to get political. I was actually going to talk about rugby league. Well, you know, you want to talk about rugby yeah, league.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I prefer I, league over <laughs> Pell. Okay, that's
2: uh, right. one of the subjects to avoid.
0: Is that right? Yeah, I think so. All right, so... First, first of all, we've got you know, a very good rugby league coach and a really smart guy, Trent Robertson, the coach of the, the Sydney City Roosters. I always call them Eastern Suburbs Roosters, but they are the Sydney City Roosters, I think, uh, or the Sydney Roosters or whatever. But they're the Roosters. He's won the grand final in, for the NRL, for people who live in Melbourne who don't know what NRL is. It's the National Rugby League. They've won the competition two years in a and row. The, and
2: that's these days... As it is in uh, in AFL, it's pretty hard to do. You don't yeah. see many back-to-back premierships with a because of salary caps and all the things that the both the ARL and the AFL do to even the competition out. They want to make it as close as they can. So yeah. it is pretty hard to uh, yeah. win two years in a row. And, and he so, won uh, his
0: first year as well, Paul. He got appointed in two thousand and twelve, won the grand final as a rookie coach. Then there's come back in two in a row. So he's pretty good. But so how are we linking him back to the coronavirus? Well, the thing is, is you know. He, I, I bumped into him. Um, uh, you,
2: know, you bumped, you mean you touched from 1.5 bu- meters, yeah, yep. one yeah, point five. or oh, yes. you did a little yeah. bump handshake.
0: Well, fortunately, he had his son mm-hmm. uh in a pram, so the pram created the 1.5 meters. But then I was pretty close to his son, but not, better not, we better cut that, um, John Brown, we better cut that anyway. The bottom line is, uh, I met him on the day that the rugby league actually said they're going to try and get back by the end of um May, and so I asked him to come on to tell us about. What kind of provisions are going to be involved? What's the likelihood that it will happen? And I also wanted to talk to him about the way he manages young people because anyone listening out there who's in, in any business know that they have a lot of young, great people, but manage them is... Very different than, say, managing people 10, 20, 30 years ago. And because his football teams are all millennials, football players are all millennials, I thought Mm. he'd be a really interesting guy to talk to, and he is.
2: So some great insights on leadership coming up.
0: Yep, and then we're going to talk to uh, a guy by the name of um, Jeff Bresnahan, who's the founder of Super Ratings. At a time when the government said, hey, you can get 20K out of your superannuation fund, Jeff's not keen on that, but he's also going to talk to us about these fears that people are going to cash because of the, the coronavirus crash. And I stuff think marked.
2: that's actually the worst thing to do. I mean, I, I'm, uh, I'm a bit more sympathetic to or empathetic to people wanting to, uh, to access their super, mainly because I think that's what you have savings for, right? Yeah. I think if you can't use them in something like this, what's the point of having them? That's right. However, you know, I think it's uh, people have got to be very mindful about the impact uh, it can do to their super retirement incomes. And mm. so if you access it now, you've got to have a plan when you get yourself Back and get the employment rolling again to get the money back into super, top mm. it back up, and mm. have that as a really number one objective. I think that's important. But coming back to another one, we we keep hearing that uh, people get scared and go from, you know, pick the sort of the, the wrong time in the market to go all defensive. This is mm. not a, you know, what what the what the GFC ta- taught us, if anything, Peter, was that markets come back. They can do it tough for a while, mm. but it's not the right time. Once the market crash has happened. It's not the time to be yeah. going all defensive. You can lose it's, twice on the way down yeah, and on the That's way right. Down. And it's exactly what happened to a lot of people. I remember uh, we used to have them on our radio program and people used to ring us about the that very well-known ad. Uh, uh, for, it was a challenge the fishing <laughs>
0: <ad>. <laughs> Yeah. He didn't have
2: time to wait for the yeah. stock market to rebound. All those people in, in 2010 did. and 2011 and 2012 yeah. who we went into annuities and uh, missed out on so much. Yeah.
0: They locked um, in at, say, 4 or 5%, yep. and the stock market was going up yep. at 10% per annum. So
2: you know, I'm, that's, I think that's a good point that Jeff raises as well.
0: Yep, and then we will talk to Alan Beard. Alan comes from the company A.H. Beard, famous for uh, bread bands like, uh, brands like Domino's and King Coil. And, this is uh, bedding. Yeah, bedding. Yep. Not betting, but bedding, mm-hmm. and they... Uh, but the beds, like the coronavirus is really significant because now hospitals are in need for a lot more beds as well. So we'll see how AHB... I thought
2: you were going to go into some more of an activity-based no, conversation no. around bedding, Peter, but no. we'll, we'll pass we'll on We'll save that, that for yep. the
0: interview. We'll save that for the interview, Paul. And then finally, we're talking to a guy by the name of John Thomas, who's a chairman of a company called M Squared Capital. You know, obviously, all financial businesses have been affected by the coronavirus. I want to find out how his company's been affected by the coronavirus. They're, in a, they're a mortgage fund. A lot of people don't understand mortgage funds, and they think that they actually lend for mortgages, but sometimes they, they don't. They just get mortgages behind the borrowings to make sure that there's security. Mm. Mm. So an interesting interview, that one is. Yeah, without a doubt. So that's the show for today. Let's kick off. So Trent Robertson is the coach of the Roosters in the NRL, or National Rugby League, competition. He's won three grand finals in nine years and is starting to look like a, a legendary leader at the ripe old age of 43. Trent, thanks for joining us on The Switzer Show.
1: No problem. Good to be here.
0: Now, uh, apart from you know getting you know, to understand where you came from and your views on leadership and things like that, the big news story is that the NRL, uh, under the leadership of Peter Volandis, is trying to get up and take on the coronavirus containment policies by the end of May. What's the likelihood of this happening, Trent, do you think?
1: So I think as we've found in the past, well, I was going to say the past couple of weeks, but daily there's been a change. Every couple of days there's been a shift in, uh, whether it's been world thought or or Australian or, or by state about what our policies are. So I think the important thing for us was to, to project the date, to set uh, an opportunity for us to, to plan and, and work towards that. But I also think the, the fact that people's missed the fact that we're going to be working um, with the health professionals to work towards that date. Now, I think uh, what the world looks like in six weeks' time will be very interesting for all of us. Uh, but I think the projection of it's a it's a good start whilst working behind the scenes to do it in the safest possible way.
2: That's come in under a bit of criticism from the Queensland Premier amongst others. What would you say to uh, your colleagues down south with the uh, AFL? I mean, are they also, do you think, sort of working on plans like this?
1: I think think all codes are working on plans. I think right across the world I've been following sport. Everybody's working towards um, what happens, how do they plan for getting their sport started again when it is possible through uh, government regulations. I think every... uh, Every sport around the world is doing that at the moment so we've worked it based on the New South Wales government regulations and I think uh, I think whether it's been New S- uh, Queensland Victoria have got slightly different rules at the moment uh, and that's um, and that's good that's uh, they're, 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 we're all working through this at the same time The only thing I'd say is that um, we're not uh, we're trying to get started in a way that is um, Good for uh, the players, good for the mental health of, of our game, and also the people that love our game. But we're not going to do fly in the face of what's right for the people. I think that's that's been our discussions uh, with the NRL. Uh,
0: do you think that um, Peter Vilandis, who you know, uh, who's, who's clearly taken up the the challenge to try and get the game back as soon as possible, has talked to government officials before, you know, laying out the possibility that the game could be up and playing on the 28th of May?
1: Well, I think there's definitely been those discussions with government. I think as you've seen, um, state government, New South Wales state government, uh, have been supportive about setting a date. And as I said, I think it's, they're understanding what, what, what happens is, um, as you know, people have to, we have to talk about today. The government have to stay on what is needed today. Um, but then we also need to project for the future in, in sport. There's a lot of planning that goes on to open up a, a sporting code. Um, so I think the, the New South Wales government have been positive about us starting again, uh, as long as we continue to trend in the right direction. Now, we'll uh, shift and move uh, if that changes. And as we should, if, if the medical advice changes in the next week or two or in four weeks, then we need to adapt with it.
2: And Trent, what's sort of, the, sort of the lead time that you as a coach need to sort of get your players ready to uh, take on a game? I mean, is it, is it four weeks, six weeks, it's even longer than that?
1: Well, it, it changes because they're training at the moment. So in isolation, all players across the game are training on their own at the moment. Uh, and I think that that's, um, I think that's uh, a really good thing. But they don't have the contact is the big thing for us. Um, to be able to get the contact back in, uh, to do that safely and then prepare for a high contact sport. The longer it goes, the longer it'll take. So if it does start on May 28, we could do that within three weeks. Um, if it does take longer, then we would need you know, four weeks and then possibly five weeks to get, to get them ready. But I would say anywhere between three and four weeks of team training uh, before we can start competition.
0: So are you saying that you'd need three weeks before May 28 or you, if we started on May 28, the first game might not be until three weeks after? No, I, I
1: do think that we'll need to get going uh, around the sort of the 6th of May around that week uh, to get started on May 28. Um,
2: so that, that's when your team would sort of come together and come together as a group and you'd be maybe in some sort of quarantine type environment but uh, you'd be effectively the whole team would be training is that right
1: yeah so i think that's this is really important okay so um the, and i understand like the public opinion will be 50-50 you know there'll people go come on i want the sport back on and there'll people will say well why should rugby league start when other industries can't start um and i understand both sides of the argument i think for us what we're saying is that we think we can do a really good quarantined environment. We're not, people think of the, uh, that it's, a, it's the stars that want to get the game back on. It's such a big industry and a lot of people, a lot of the average Australians rely on rugby league uh, as, as a job, as a way of life. Um, so I think that's important. But the thing that our industry has is we have two or three doctors that look after 36 players. So every single day, um, we have a doctor uh, at our environment that that can put in protocols um, to quarantine and and to to best adhere to health regulations. And that's not possible in in every industry. And we think we can do it really safely uh, in a way. And uh, and so that's what we'd like to do, is to put um, some really safe precautions into it in the right possible way. Um, but then we would have to do that for two to three weeks before we start training, no, before we
0: start playing. Now, Trent, you're the kind of person who, you know, you know I, I know you read business books and all that sort of stuff, so you're into risk management. Do you think the risk management could be done so that players are tested basically daily to see whether they've got coronavirus um, symptoms and anyone who, who had that could be eliminated and therefore you'd, you'd have a playing uh, competition, a competition of players that would be coronavirus free and as a consequence, there'd be very little threat to the actual players? Yeah, I
1: think we can create an environment that is um, very, very safe for the players. Now, the ultimate would be to go into a, uh, like a, that bubble type arrangement where we're all, um, we've gone through a quarantine period, uh, gone into a safe zone and we start playing games. Now, the second question about that is how will the mental health of players be taken away from their family? So we've decided to deviate from that and create um, protocols where every day they come in, uh, they can answer questionnaires around um, what their uh, how they feel and what their contacts have been. And then also um, uh, the temperature testing um, uh, and, and, and different protocols in our environment. So it's going to be, uh, it's going to be highly safe uh, environment, and we can't. Uh, it'd be silly for me as a rugby league coach to say we can't uh, eradicate the risk completely. But I know, through talking to the doctors, that we can reduce our risk significantly compared to uh, me who lives in Waverley and walks around in a in a uh, an infected area. I, I believe that the the training environment will be safer than than, than some people's areas where they live.
2: So Trent, let's uh, move on to your other, your, we talked about business earlier, Peter, and uh, activities outside uh, football. What are the things that uh, keep you up at night away from football?
1: So I, my, uh, my two, uh, my, my family and my work are the two things that, that are my daily uh, uh, joys. They're the things that I, I'm lucky to do a sport that is also a passion, uh, that also uh, would be a, a hobby of mine or entertainment if I wasn't doing it so uh, that they're two really important things to me but I I love uh, reading uh, and when I get the opportunity my people have weekly hobbies that that gets put to the end of the year for me on through travel and and experience so um, but I do enjoy yeah reading and 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 discovering new things Uh, it's important for me to keep me active
0: Now, as I say, I know you do read business books and you clearly are in the leadership game because you are leading uh, a group of young men and arguably the group of young men you are leading uh, are millennials which are regards one of the hardest generations in the history of generations to lead. Uh, And uh, you also got guys who are pretty heavy when it comes to testosterone and all those sorts of things. Yeah. What, what have you learnt about leading young people? Because a lot of people you know, watching this uh, li- and listening to this run businesses with young people. What have you learnt about getting the best out of them?
1: So, there's a few things. The world's changed in the last couple of decades around choice. And I think we've all, um, there's, seen, there's been different talks and books and that written about choice and, and how important it has been. Uh, for all of us, but also how there's a tipping point. How sometimes we get too much choice. Um, uh, but in in understanding that, so I started there because understand that these uh, young men or women have grown up with a lot of choice in life, uh, and they want to have an opinion on on on, on what uh, the next decision they're going to make, or someone's going to make for them. What what that means. So so then, if I go back to leadership, you have to understand what you stand for. People don't. Um, people there's two things they, they want strength and vulnerability. So um, people talk about being vulnerable, but you also have to stand for something. So people do want someone that is going to lead them that is going to give them uh, give them a direction to go, but then they also want to know that you've got a heart at the same time. So that's, that's, a, that's a big part of it and in that vulnerability it is saying, hey what, what's your opinion? Where would you like to go? let's discuss different uh, opportunities for um, for you, you to be heard. And when they have that opportunity, um, there's, a, there's usually a stronger direction that you take. The other thing about leadership, I think often people lead only in their personality type. This is a bit slightly different in uh, the way that people lead. So people will lead based on their style, which is really important, but you've also got to understand that you have to shift and move um, in different ways around your personality. So my personality will work for certain types of people. But if I understand that my, uh, my personality type won't work for others, I need to be able to shift and move into different directions to allow uh, better coaching or, or better leadership to take place. And that does take some self-analysis to be able to know when to shift.
0: I know in the book, Rockefeller Habits, Rockefeller reck- reckoned that, If you want to lead um, children in particular you give them a a handful of rules and you repeat them very often do you you find the same thing works well in a football team well this is we often talk
1: about it if you want to if you want to get the um even the greatest creativity comes from rules if you want to if you want to get someone to be creative give them uh give them a couple of rules to lead by or to, to to live by and then their creativity will flourish if you don't offer that opportunity. If you say, oh, well, you know, um, draw me a picture, then they, they won't be as creative if you say, draw me a picture with uh, an X and two O's in it, then the creativity can flourish. So the same thing is people think that millennials want to, um, they want to have all the choice. So just uh, like have a really open arrangement. No, no, no. You've got to have some principles you stand by, some rules that you live by as a team uh, or as a person and then your creativity can flourish off the back of that. So that's that balance between um, showing strength in leadership and conviction, and also having enough flexibility to to, to allow others opportunity to grow or to, to offer their uh, instinct as well.
2: You talk a lot about uh, choice, and I guess that probably means more collegial style of leadership, but a- as the leader, what happens when the choice your players want to make isn't the same choice that you want them to make how do you how do you sort of work that out with uh, when when they want to go in a different direction to where you want want them to go
1: so uh, this is there's a couple of ways to answer that but I'll, i'll i'll take one direction whether it's on field or off field there's a there's a different one if it's if it's off field um sometimes you're wrong so sometimes you, with either in a split second or over the course of a day or two, have to reflect on why, they, um, why they've why they decided to go in that way. And then you go back to a couple of basic principles of your own and you either say, yep, I agree, actually, they, they might be right, or no, 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 we're going to stick to this choice. Um, uh, and I've thought this out, and, and off-field is, uh, is, is usually much clearer. On-field, um, you can guide them, but... They're, it's their subconscious talking. So, often what they won't... Players won't sit at home and reflect all day like coaches will and come up with an answer. The best thing about asking a player about their on-field play, it'll naturally come out of them. And that's what, what comes out of them, is their subconscious. And so, in, in a game, that's what decides um, play. It is not something that they've gone in thinking about. It's something that's a natural instinct to them. So, often what they say... Uh, is going to come out anyway. So you can decide to try and change direction and sometimes you need to guide them. But I often allow a lot more choice on field around our strong principles that we've set up at the start of the year. And then the, the players can take you on a journey because they're much smarter than us.
2: And, and, and the players presumably have to sign up to your principles. They're, they're, they're mutually agreed. Is that correct? Or?
1: Yeah, so there's, there's the, the framework or the foundation work, which is often thought out by coaches, adhered to by players, and then it organically grows uh, over a period of time, and then they become one. The, the, like Jake, Friend, or Boyd Corda, um, own and believe in those principles as much as myself and Craig Fitzgibbon, as coaches. So they, 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 there's no, we don't, we we all have ownership over them now. Uh, but then the way that the team plays on the back of that, um, uh, Boyd and Jake. Uh, will have more choice on field than what I do. You know, my job is to keep them adhered to foundations that are going to keep them developing as a team and as players, but their growth is decided on the choices that they want to make on
0: field. And because this is a, a national program, Trent, I must ask you the question because our Melbourne friends can be very an- anti or uninformed about the NRL. Is there an AFL coach that you've learnt a lot from um, you know being a leader of footballers.
1: Yeah, I've studied a lot uh, uh, of coaches now. Two that I've I've spent a lot of time with John Longmire at the Swans. We've travelled together, uh, studied together. So I really um, there's a lot about the foundation of their their culture that I've really enjoyed talking to, um, uh, and that that was a, a big part of um, uh, yeah the. I've, I've, We've swapped so many ideas over the last seven to eight years. It's been really enjoyable. Uh, and I was lucky enough to spend some time with Bomber Thompson down at uh, Geelong uh, when Tom Harley was captain. And a really uh, completely different style of coaching. A really, uh, and I think he shifted just before I got there as well, um, but more of a creative sort of uh, open guy with the way that he coached. So I was really enjoyed uh, watching that as well.
0: Well, Trent, thanks for joining us on the program and we wish you a lot of luck and uh, let's hope you can make it three in a row.
1: That's the plan. Appreciate being on, guys.
0: Well, it's time in the show when we do uh, an ad poll from the, our sponsor. and Of course, the sponsors always switchers nowadays. So how about we talk about the book? The that...
2: book, the really fantastic book, which has got that title...
0: Uh, what is it called now? Join the Rich Club, I think it's called, Paul. It
2: is called Join the Rich Club. Who so, was think the that's... author? Well, it's one P. Switzer Esquire.
0: So well named for a money book, isn't it? Switzerland and Switzerland. Yeah. I hope our listeners have picked that one up. Well, look, I, I born well, ex- to do money.
2: Apart from being a great book, we have a fantastic offer, Peter. Now we ran this over Easter. We got a fantastic response. We're hmm. going to keep it going for the listeners of the podcast. Yes. Normally, this book would cost you. It's not a big sum. Would cost you twenty four dollars and ninety five cents. Yeah, that's cost normal. 25. Right. Yeah. And we've knocked 30% off? And we've knocked 30% off to some number I can't rapidly calculate, but uh, it's probably something yeah. like $16 and something and yeah, a few plus cents left Plus postage. It, hand postage.
0: Hand. But if they go to our website, they actually see what the price the, But the it is, is. 30% uh,
2: off, it's, yeah. and it's only because we had such a good response over Easter and we uh, want to reward our podcast listeners yeah. um, that we're continuing the offer. But you've got to hurry because – what do they say? You know, they ads with the Bing Lee family get yeah. the, the limited offer. Limited offer because yeah. you won't be in your job anymore, or you're not really allowed to offer this, or yeah. you know, you know, you'll be in big trouble with the real boss. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. won't go there. Yeah, won't we? we'll go there. Yeah. <laughs>
0: it could be called sexist if it's just yeah. that. Anyway, yeah. So the bottom you're line is, already by yeah, doing this, right? Summa- we, didn't, we didn't get clear yeah, That's right. The summary is go to switzerstore.com.au for the Cheapest investment in getting rich I've ever seen in my life. Well, the coronavirus has put superannuation under pressure, and it comes at a time when the latest performance from super funds uh, is out there for us to have a look at. To um, cover all those important issues, we've got Jeff Bresnahan, who's been the founder of SuperRatings.com.au. Jeff, thanks for joining us.
3: My uh, pleasure, Peter Paul.
0: All right, mate. Let's kick off with the performance of super funds first. Um, what's, what's been going on there?
3: Well, oh, they obviously got belted around in, in February. Um, they bounced back a bit in, in April. Oh, sorry, in March, but they bounced reasonably well in, uh, in April um, to the end of March. Funds were down around nine percent for balanced funds. Down around about nine percent for the uh, calendar year. Uh, sorry, for the month and ten percent for the calendar year. So. Um, the 12-month rolling period down about 3%. And, look, overall, you've basically given up your own in since about January last year. So it looked really bad on paper for a little while, but yeah. markets have bounced back, and, and they're in a reasonable position
2: at the moment. So it's been a tough uh, first quarter, but uh, over 10 years, the returns still look okay. Is that right, Jeff?
3: Yeah, absolutely. The, the returns over 10 and, and 7 and even 15. They're all up around 6%. And the thing that we sort of uh, conveniently forget these days is that inflation over that same period has been pretty much less than two. So, you know, we've we've had a net return or a real return of about 4% per annum through a whole series of things, including GFC, including, uh, obviously, COVID-19. And yet they're still still there and they're still batting away and they're still providing... um, yeah, excellent retirement
2: benefits now these are returns across the industry uh, jeff and uh, i appreciate that but let's just talk about some of the impacted uh, some industries have got hit harder than others and uh, i guess retail and hospitality and, and a few at travel um uh, should there anyone have a concern about particular funds out there because of what's going on with uh, in different industries at the moment
3: you're talking about
2: liquidity there? Well, yeah, let's talk about liquidity. I mean, I mean, let's, the returns you've just quoted are, are for the industry as, as a whole, mm. uh, and that's a median return, and that look okay. But what about uh, some of the particular funds and, and, and particular liquidity issues, perhaps? Um,
3: look, I, I personally, I don't think there's any liquidity issue in the industry, and, I, and I'm positive that there won't be a major problem with that going forward. Um, look, the liquidity issue, unfortunately... Um, was initially thrown up by um, one of the senators, Senator Semester Andrew Bragg from the Liberal Party, um, who had a real swipe at um, at all superannuation fund trustees and and accusing them of, of poor investment governance. Um, you know, I, I mean, it was pretty poor uh, form for for a senator to use a global pandemic to try and panic Australian people and, and to try and scare them uh, with regard to their superannuation and the potential liquidity issues. Mm. So. You know, I, personally, I, I've spoken to a lot of funds, and, and nearly every fund I've spoken to has cash uh, liquidity of over 10%. Now, if the government's uh, view that the maximum drawdown out of superannuation would be 1% of the uh, pot, then there cannot be an issue. And even when you're talking, people will try and focus on particular funds. And, you know, if they're five times the average in terms of the drawdown, there's still not going to be an issue with liquidity. So personally I don't see it as an issue. Um, I find it in a really poor form from Senator Bragg, who may well have um, a hidden agenda here on superannuation. I think he showed his cards before. Um, that he even raises it as as an issue in the middle of a, of a pandemic. And mm-hmm. bearing in mind it was his government and I'm uh, sorry, uh, his government that actually allowed access to this superannuation. Um, amounts. You know, we've had bipartisan governments for 28 years enforce on trustees the fact of the sole purpose test. And the short answer on the short sole purpose test is that trustees have to act in the best interest for people's retirement benefit. Yeah. So this whole argument about investing in illiquid, in illiquid investments, um, uh, from a long term perspective is exactly right. If funds and trustees have taken into account the fact they've had massive inflows, the fact they've had a really young demographic who don't retire until they're 67. They've been told they've got a legal requirement to invest in the best interests at age 67. And now that the government springs the gates open in a different way. And this senator and, and sorry, some of the media has piled on as if there's
0: a major drama here. I just think it's really poor. So, Jeff, you know, I won't underline how youthful you are because that would be unfair, but you've certainly been around for a long time and you remember some of the the stories in superannuation. And I remember uh, the Motor Traders super fund was a a terrific fund, but it got caught out when it had too many um, properties in its fund and its performance really went off the ball there for a while. Um have super funds learnt from their experience and, and therefore they're not as exposed to properties as, as the Motor Traders Group were? Uh, was it around the GFC or was it even before then?
3: It, it was during the GFC. And they had uh, upwards of 40%, closer to 50% in, in um, alternatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of it was, was direct property. Um, there was some infrastructure in there, a lot of private equity. A lot of the funds in the run-up to the GFC bought stupid private equity. Um, it was just everyone said, oh, we have to have 10% in private equity. So off they went and bought it, irrespective of the quality of the asset. Now, think funds have learned from that, and the quality of the alternative assets that you see in a lot of these funds these days, you know, and it's, it's a lot of the big funds, the 50 billion plus funds, they are airports, you know, they are toll roads. There's a the whole series of infrastructure that the capital required for these sort of investments you know, really can only come from Australia's major super funds and obviously international money as well. So it will be interesting to see at the end of this whole COVID-19 issue, who's going to be there to recapitalise Australia. And you know what? It's going to be the super funds because they did it after the GFC. They're going to do it again after COVID-19. There is strong or still are strong um, inflows into these superannuation funds. Now, clearly some in some industries will have taken a hit in terms of their flows, but the flows are still positive and therefore there's still money to be invested um, and used in appropriate ways for the Australian economy.
2: So, Jeff, just coming back to the uh, government's uh, earlier release of up to $10,000 this year and $10,000 next year if you've been impacted by uh, the coronavirus, um, it sounds like you're not a huge fan of that.
3: I'm not. You know why?
2: I, I think it's
3: quite ironic that the government has allowed probably the lowest socioeconomic parts of, of, of the country to rescue themselves. So, you know, the people that are deal most in need of this money are those um, that don't have much. So what little they had put aside, managed to put aside for, for their retirement is now open to them and obviously they're going to rip it out. And you can't um, say that's the wrong thing to do. People will need acts cut off. People want to feel comfortable. You know, they don't want to be scared about where where the next dollars coming from. So I support it in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, what I don't support is obviously when you know you do have guys like that, uh, you know, Andrew Bragg, Kylie and On, and trying to make a big deal of it. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, it wasn't that well thought through. I don't even think the ATO knew that that was going to be announced the, t- the night it was bit, uh, it was announced. Um, interestingly, it was the first thing to be announced. So clearly people thought, oh, well I've got this grand or 10 grand at the time which I can grab. Now since then, the government's released a whole heap of measures, so job keeper, job seeker, mm. etcetera, et which is really going to um, settle things down. There's been six hundred thousand pre-registrations for super. They are not registrations. The government, the ATO, still has not got the forms sorted yet. So that six hundred thousand may translate into into withdrawals. It may not. In fact, there's probably going to be slightly lower. So on those numbers, the numbers, you know, they're not big numbers coming out of the super funds, but. Look, overall, I support what the government's done in an emergency situation. They've probably done it in the wrong order, mm. and that is, they went super first, and then job keeper, job
0: seeker. Well, I'll eventually make you buy a very expensive bottle of red wine. We'll argue over that one, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> but the, 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 what,
2: uh, <laughs> over the over the order they did it. Or? Yeah, no,
0: no, I think I think the the highest priority was to stop the economy going into a serious recession. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why they went for that. And uh, I think younger people can catch up and and I think governments in the future will raise the superannuation levy from 9.5 to a higher level. So those people will catch up over time. The, the the people I guess in their fifties with very low balances they're the ones that Jeff's argument I think yeah. really stands.
2: I, I, I think Jeff's point's more though that if the government when it did its first package probably wasn't expecting it was going to have package two and package three. Well, they didn't think so, it was going to be as bad. So uh, by, you know, it, it went so. for super first, and yeah. I think Jeff's point maybe that should have been the third. Look, package, don't but defend but Jeff. Like Jeff can I'm defend
0: not, himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but this is one area where well, I, I, I don't. I don't agree yeah. about some <laughs> other comments, but let's yeah. go. All right, <laughs> so th- th- this is one area where I, I think you are worried about is lots of people switching from say a balanced Mm. uh, super fund into cash and it's one of the downsides that we all have this online connection to our super funds because in the good old or the bad old days people wouldn't have been able to switch so easily would they jeff
3: no that's right and and there has been the influx into the call centers immediately uh after the whole covid-19 beginning was massive Mm. so you know the super funds had to deal a lot of things a lot of it was to do with switching. Um, obviously, a lot to do was, was early access as well. But there was a lot of switching which we, we saw in the GFC um, in in two particular funds. I remember up to twenty five percent of people switched to cash. Mm-hmm. And you know what? They missed the the, the, the rebound uh, kick up. Okay. Yeah, the rebound, and and it was really really disappointing. And um, you know, the financial planners have a, have a, a major point here that you know they're trying to get. Simple advice to Australians at, at, at these critical times, and they can't because you know the cost of actually providing simple advice is out of this world. Um, and clearly, again, that's something else that needs to be looked at because people should need to be saved from themselves sometimes. And this is a great case of it. And mm. you know, as I've always said, if you're in the right investment option, then it is a set and forget largely. Um, towards retirement, it should last you, you know, thirty, forty years. If you're a twenty-something-year-old, you should be in a high-risk, you know, high-return, long-term investment strategy. And,
2: and that's what your uh, data shows, Jeff. I mean, over ten years, you know, the the, uh, the growth option six point five percent per annum. The capital stable option is is four point five percent, and that's after March twenty twenty. So. Mm. Um, the data really does bear out your point. Yeah,
0: and I've got to say, Jeff, um, a mate of mine who I've not seen since my wedding day, so you can see how long ago, he actually rang. He actually rang me up at the depth of the of the sell-off and said. Switch? should I go to cash? <laughs> he actually oh, asked man. that question. And I said to him, what are you in? He said, I'm in a balance fund. And I said, I can't give you advice, but if I was you, <laughs> I would not go to cash. So He hasn't rang me back and said, "We're well done, switch yet, but I'm sure he will one day. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, all right, mate. Well, thanks for joining us on the program. Is there anything else you'd like to throw in around the, the, the whole superannuation issue as you see it right now?
3: Um, look, the only thing I'd say is um, there seems to be, for whatever reason, um, a bit of a pile on onto some some segments of the, of the superannuation system. And you know, there was a I think Tony Shepherd, um, whoever he is, came out the other day and started talking about trying to um, cease the, the superannuation uh, guarantee contributions. These sort of things. These things are not helpful. They're, they're very they're destabilising, and you know? I think what people continually forget is that compulsory soup has only been in play for 28 years, okay? No one has gone through their whole life with compulsory superannuation and retired, yep. So I'm really confident this system works and will work and will, you know, make our economy incredibly strong um, going forward. The trouble is people keep tinkering with the damn thing. People, you know, obviously, um, different... Political parties have different political agendas and factions within them have different agendas as well. And my concern is we just have to leave this damn thing alone and let it work and it will work.
0: Jeff Bresnahan from superratings.com.au. Thanks for joining us.
3: Good evening. Thanks, gentlemen.
0: And, of course, that was Jeff Bresnahan from the company superratings.com.au. And you can go there and you can actually see what have been the best-performing funds. Paul? What are we going to do on the ad for now? We can't do the book again.
2: We can't do the book, although it is 30% off, switzerstore.com.au. Yeah. But a second ad, yeah. because it is different, yeah. uh, is, of course, the Switzer Report, which is our foundation um, publication. It yeah. comes out uh, Monday, Thursdays, and Saturdays. And we try to help the self-directed investor make the right call, find the right stocks, do the things they need for their portfolio to meet their investment objectives. So yeah. we're not we're not trying to do it for you. We're just trying to help you. And, uh, yeah.
0: and we access people who we think access- about stocks 24 7 and they share their insider views, not insider on the company, but their insider. Investment knowledge And, and not just stocks, Peter, because there's a
2: whole lot of other things to invest in, but also there are other issues around structures and, and getting things that are right and making sure you've got the right uh, understanding, all the rules and terms. If you pick It tools a, you up to be a better investor. Tools you up to be a better investor, and that's what we want. We want healthy, successful investors. Rich.
0: Rich. Not poor investors. Not poor. <laughs> that would not be good for the reputation. Hey, those guys create poor investors. You couldn't run with that, could you? You couldn't have a book called… Uh, <laughs> Join the poor club. Join the poor club. Well, you could have a book called Joining the Poor Club. That'd be a funny book. That could
2: be a bit of a, what do they call it? Um, Well, it's not satirical, but um, I know the word I'm thinking of, anyhow. Uh, Or come to me later, I'm sure. Anyhow, (laughs) the Switzer Report, to get access to that, in fact, you can actually take out a trial if you want to. Yeah, Switzer Report. Uh, normally, at $397, you can actually take out a 30-day trial. You go to SwitzerReport, all one word, switzerreport.com.au, take out a free 30-day trial. If you like it, we know you'll then want to subscribe.
0: Yeah, and it, it potentially is tax-deductible, isn't it, Paul?
2: Yeah, it, depending on, on, yeah, it could be tax-deductible. You're a private investor. You're, you're in the accumulation phase of a super fund. could be tax-deductible, so... Yeah. um all this type of uh, guidance, and uh, and that's what we're about. Guidance that hopefully you can trust. Uh, we'll uh, we hope to make you a better investor.
0: Yeah, better person, better investor. That's what Switzers do. I mean, you're a, you're a very helping sort of guy. Peter. That's right. Okay, I'm getting the wind up from the producer. Let's go to our next guest, and this is uh, Alan Beard, and Alan is one of the the founding family members of the great Aussie company A.H. Beard, and if you don't know A.H. Beard, I bet you know the brands of the, the beds that they've been making for years and selling right around the world. Alan Beard, welcome to the program. Morning, Switz. Now listen, buddy, talk to for people who don't know A.H. Beard and the they've seen the trucks all over uh, Australia, but t- tell them the, the famous brands that you guys make, the bedding that they would see in Harvey Norman and all the other department stores.
4: Uh, I'd say without a doubt, our most known brand is King Coil, uh, which we've been manufacturing for many years, and that's the only bed that's actually endorsed by the International Chiropractors Association, so it's more of a back-care type product. Mm. We also have the brand of Domino, which has been around for a long, long time as well, and highly respected. And then we do have some smaller sub-brands of Nature's Rest, which is a, a natural latex collection. Uh, Etc. But uh, yeah, King Claws without a doubt, our most known brand. Yeah. But the AHB brand is quite well known, and we do actually market under the HB brand now as well.
0: How many beds a year do you make? Uh, oh, it
4: goes into I think about you know two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand. It's about you know on a good week, it's uh, you know five thousand beds, and you know uh, or a, a good week can be ten thousand at peak time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but yeah, you know, we. You know, it varies as to the uh, retail cycles of January and the clearance months and so forth are busier. Mm. Um, And uh, as you know, we've been fortunate, we've expanded into export to Mm. China, to South Korea, to, um, you know, even countries like Papua New Guinea, Mm. uh, Thailand. And that's been quite beneficial for our business.
0: So, a lot of people have had a lot of pleasure on your beds.
4: We like to
0: speak so. um, first. All kinds of pleasures, sleeping and playing with children and all those sort of things. My colleagues are giving me funny looks at this point in time. Yes, Alan,
2: <laughs> I'll bring it back to the straight and narrow here. Um, so Ask him about the most expensive no, gonna, bed they've sold, I, Paul. Well, I could do that. I'm going to go back to you mentioned um, peak selling period. Are there peaks for beds or is that around the retail cycle?
4: Uh, it's around the retail cycle that I think uh, when you've got the big sale periods of January and uh, June, July, is people are out in stores more often. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a product that usually requires both husband and wife to be available to go shopping together for, um, and so there's a higher likelihood that they could be on holidays or the time to go visit stores. Okay. And there's more sales on, so I think people end up with a bit of a sales frenzy, mm-hmm. and uh, so they're actually you know taking more awareness of retail advertising at that time
0: yes okay so what's the most expensive bed you've ever sold (laughs)
4: um well our signature collection which is completely handmade hand tufted with all the best ingredients of you know merino wool and alpaca uh, cashmere and silk and so forth and it takes a couple of days to make just one mattress um we export those to china and in china um, that sells in a king size mattress about 75,000 US. So over a hundred thousand Australian dollars. Mm. Uh, and that's not an occasional sale. That's not like, you know, one a year or one a month. We actually sell them every week. We've now got close to about 50 AH beard ultra premium bedding stores across China now. Um, and, uh, you know, so we're one of the uh, premium brands in that country. That similar bed here in Australia retails for anywhere between Twenty-five and thirty thousand Australian dollars um, in some of our, you know, prestige retailers here in Australia. Mm.
0: So, uh, I guess there's a possibility that Chinese people might buy them here and carry them home in their bag. Well, a very very big bag, wouldn't it? Really?
4: Oh, definitely. We've had we've had examples of, um, you know, they're quite sophisticated shoppers and they do their research and when they find they can buy it cheaper here and ship it. We have had. Mm. um, Stores this. they had regular customers coming and buying them, and we had to try and, you know, that undermines our retail partners in China, mm. um, and so we've got to try and protect them where we can top of thing, uh, but it does happen, you know, just like, I guess, uh, you know, the baby, you know, uh, uh, powder food, uh, the powder for babies yeah. and so forth when they buy it here and ship it up there because yeah. uh, it's more expensive up there.
2: So, Alan, uh, let's uh, let's come back to COVID nineteen. We've got yeah. to ask you questions about that, but uh, I guess that's impacting you in a number of ways in manufacturing, your sales, but also some of the things you're doing. So, just tell us about how you're uh, how you're faring under the uh, the restrictions, the lockdowns, and everything else that uh, the community's working through.
4: Well, as you know, it's a changing landscape. It you can change by the day, by the week, or even by the hour. At the moment, with new announcements out. Um, so we have factories in every state of Australia. So there's six factories here, one in New Zealand. Here in Australia, you know, you've got to understand beds are a highly discretionary product. Um, in that, you know, if you've had your bed for nine and a half years, and you think about the if you've got any uncertainty about the, you know, economy, your employment, mm. or any of those type of things, um, you know, you you can postpone that purchase until your confidence you know, returns. So obviously. There is plenty of uncertainty about people's employment. There is pretty, you know, well, you know, unanimous you know, concern about the overall economy, let alone other country economies as well. Um, so at the moment, you know, bedding sales, uh, you know, really lackluster. Um, uh, some of our retailers are down about 50% at the moment. Um, also you've got, you know, our leaders encouraging people to stay at home and not go out unnecessarily. Um, so we're not an essential product that people have to get and they buy food or things like that. Um, so, yes, it's been a, quite a substantial downturn. From what I'm told by the majority of our retailers is that we've been battling the storm better than others. Um, and on further you know, research, we find that there seems to be a very strong groundswell of support for Australian brands and Australian made products, mm-hmm. and uh, also companies that are known and credible. So, I guess we tick those boxes. Um, and, you know, but it will take time for it to you know, recover, unfortunately. I, I would unfortunate. have thought,
0: Alan, I would have thought there have been a few Australians who, being at home for such a long time, would have actually probably required a new bed because they would have overworked it.
4: Um, undoubtedly, as, you know, <laughs> the good thing about our category is. You know, people don't stop buying beds; they just postpone for a period of time, yeah. and their beds still gradually wear out. And in time, they will need to replacement Um But uh, at, at the moment, I think there's a lot of uncertainty. The floor traffic in stores, mm-hmm. and especially bedding shops or even you know Harvey Norman, is greatly reduced. Um, but fortunately, the ones that are going out seem to be investing in better quality, which also is beneficial for us because more we're more in the middle to better end of the market. Uh, but uh, yeah, with a prolonged period of time where they can't spend on pokies and clubs and restaurants and especially not on cruises or international travel, which is one of our biggest challenges or who we fight against most is the uh, travel market in the recent years for people's discretionary dollars. So we anticipate that they will, you know, the money that they've got, historically they go out there and start to invest in luxuries for themselves. And once we start coming out of this uh, you know type of lockdown or social isolation you know, challenges we're facing at the moment.
2: so they they will come back as soon as the um they get more confidence in their in their future, and so the lockdown coming to an end will be real positive for your business by the sounds of it. what um, what are you doing around hospital mattress production?
4: Hmm. Well, fortunately, we've been successful. we've uh, only just about a week or so received our first order. We don't normally make hospital mattresses, but it's one of the things with we've got the uh, manufacturing capacity to you know, make the hospital mattresses. We were working on programs for the aged care and nursing home market, and so we already had a lot of the you know, skills there. So we got our first order for 500 hospital mattresses uh, to be delivered in West Australia this week, and um, and there is a positive sign that we may also get export orders for those for countries like Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, et cetera, which are, you know, possibly going to have a higher incidence of the COVID nineteen than what Australia has. As you know, you know, a month ago it was looking it was kind of looking like it was going to be a lot worse than what it's shown to be so far. But um, I emphasise so far, um, and that we wouldn't have had enough hospital beds. Now it looks like we must we may be able to get by because we're flattening the curve. Uh, but other countries are obviously facing you know a higher incidence level and. And a greater need for hospital beds so there is the uh, potential for more hospital bed export orders fortunately and also fortunately the chinese market as we hear has top of rebounded after the COVID 19 and it didn't really hit some of the major cities um you know shanghai beijing etc so our partners up there report and we do have people on the ground in china as well we can't travel there ourselves anymore but um, our people there report that business is starting to recover uh, but once again, it's a luxury item and possibly the emphasis uh, could be on other items first. Mm. And, and the other one is Hong Kong's bounced back very, very well. You know, Hong Kong's been in the doldrums with all the uh, protests for a period of time. Then when they went from that straight into uh, you know the COVID-19, uh, but they went into it and then out of it fairly quickly by most country standards.
0: Alan, thanks for joining us for the program. Well done.
4: Are you? You're welcome, guys.
0: And that was Alan Beard of AH Beard. So imagine that you're the chairman of a business during the coronavirus, where you're getting money off people and you're lending it to business people who then put up their property as security. Imagine how you might feel if you're in that position. Well, my next guest. He's exactly in that position. His name is John Thomas. He's the chairman of a company called M-Square Capital. And we've interviewed the CEOs uh, or the founders of um, M-Square Capital before. But now we want to talk to the guy. who's right at the top who has to take him on board. All the curveballs are being thrown at the business. John Thomas, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Peter. So what's it like, mate? You, we well, got a fantastic head of hair for a bloke your age. So you clearly haven't lost any hair over this coronavirus, <laughs> like I have. <laughs>
5: <laughs> no, I uh, I've got hair like a Bob Hawke had. So yeah. that's just a blessing of nature, Peter.
0: Yeah. Okay, but have you have you been worried? You're like you've been in this game for a long time. And we will actually look at your your history as well. But is this the coronavirus curveball that you never expected you'd have to be hitting out of the park?
5: Look. I've had to work through and live through some difficult crisis, but this one has everything in it. It's the worst I've seen for Mm. people and for business.
0: Mm. And that's that's because we've had to close down. Absolutely. And like September 11, Y2K, SARS, GFC, provided your business wasn't going out backwards, you still could go to work and people still could go to restaurants and pubs That whole vibe of an economy has been just rattled by this pandemic.
5: Absolutely. And of course, on top of what you just said, people have either lost their jobs or been stood down or taken a fairly significant haircut, Mm. hence the $320 billion stimulus package.
0: Yeah. Could you believe a stimulus package of that magnitude?
5: I still find it hard when I get up of a morning to say to myself, $320 billion in Australia. But... It was necessary, Peter.
0: Yeah, we're lucky in a sense that the government bit the bullocks. I, I know um, when the first signs of a coronavirus was coming, I was interviewed on Sky News and they said um, two weeks ago you thought we might need uh, a budget sur- a deficit of about $2 billion. What do you think now, Peter? I said, oh, maybe four, maybe six. <laughs> the magnitude, like, but none of us expected closing downs, lockdowns and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. This is... This is unheard of stuff isn't it
5: it is unheard of when people ask me and almost in disgust i say as there is good cholesterol and bad cholesterol there is good debt and there is bad debt for today this is good debt yeah. because if we don't take it on board we will literally collapse that's right
0: and the interesting thing i think also uh, john which a lot of people haven't thought through is that this is the magnitude of the offering given the fact that we may well be in trouble for six months, if it's a four-month problem, then the government doesn't have to spend all that money, but they've earmarked to spend that money if it's needed because ultimately if someone's out of work for three months rather than six months, well, then JobKeeper is only going to be relevant for three months rather than six months. Therefore, the government doesn't have to spend all that money.
5: Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And whilst there's not much evidence at the moment, Wuhan, uh, as of two days ago, has lifted all restrictions. And if you recall from news articles, they started to get into trouble with the virus in late December. So that's about three and a bit months. So if that's any guide, yes, I think we should be out of this late May, early June.
0: What have you guys done as a board as a consequence of the coronavirus? Because obviously your executives, um, the guys who we've interviewed here before, um, they would be doing their stuff, but the board's role is also to give them guidance. What what are you guys coming up with?
5: I guess in no particular order, three things pop out. Firstly, we have had a full review on the lending that we might continue to do in this crisis. And without sounding harsh, we wouldn't lend to anybody that was directly affected by the crisis. Mm. A travel agency. A travel agency, you know. um, A restaurant. A restaurant. But there are, for example, manufacturing, if I can just draw on that. Woolworths and Coles and Aldi and many dentists and many doctors are all after plastic perspex screens. One of my closest friends works for one of these companies uh, and he said they've actually doubled their staff. So, as an example, if a company like that came to us, wanted finance for business and had the proper security, that's what we would do.
0: Okay. And for those people who don't know what M Square Capital does, what is proper security?
5: Proper security is always real estate, Mm. a registered first mortgage, uh, and in M Square's case, it must be an improved property. In other words, it must be a house Mm. or it must be an industrial property, and we would take a first mortgage over that to no more. Then sixty five percent of the value. Of so the they property. can't
0: come in with with a debt against that property. It has to be clear of it. Anyway. Not at all. Okay. Not at so all. It gives you an idea of who you're lending to. Let's now um, give a history of of who you are. Uh, and I, I don't get about your school days or anything <laughs> like that. <you> know, <laughs> they were my best days. <laughs> but I bumped into you when you were managing uh, the Howard uh, Mortgage Fund. Yes. All right. Was that the correct name of it? Yes, Howard Mortgage Fund. And I I happen to know Brett Howard as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that rolled into Challenger. Yes. And and what was your function at that that company?
5: I was flooded by all the fancy titles I had, Peter, but effectively I was the one running the fund. Mm. Um, And when I joined Brett, the fund had just been established uh, and from then right through to the time when Challenger boarded, and I eventually left. So 86, I started. 2003, I left. Mm. The fund was just touching uh, three billion dollars, the biggest in the country.
0: And, and what was the typical, the typical um, transaction that that fund was powered upon?
5: It was typically lending to small to medium enterprises, mm. even when we were two and a half billion our average loan size was still under $3 million. Mm. And so it was to provide money to enhance small businesses uh, and that business would offer a mortgage over improved property, quite often a director's home yeah. or a weekender and or the factory. So,
0: so basically what M Square Capital have done is exactly what it did. Yes. Yeah, I see. Uh, if, it
5: ain't, if it ain't broken, don't fix it, Peter.
0: Mm, yeah. Um, so you've, therefore you've been through... The GFC, yes. you've been through Y2K, um, even young enough to be the 87 crash?
5: 87 crash, the yeah. 90 recession, <laughs> SARS, all yeah. of it. Okay,
0: <laughs> so so I guess a lot of people would be wondering how long do you think it'll be before normalcy returns to your business because your business requires People feel comfortable about property and house prices. are my question, what do you think will happen to house prices? But um, how long do you think before normalcy comes back?
5: I think it all depends on how long we're in this social isolation period, mm. as we discussed before. I mean, they call it suppression now, isn't suppression, it? Suppression, yes. Yeah. What's in a name, Peter? Yeah. Um, my view is I would hope that by mid, mid-June we're moving out of this and I think the minute we do and as it were, our front door's open, people will go out and start to spend. Mm. And I think the minute that happens, stores will reopen again, restaurants will be reopen, factories reopen, people will want to borrow money. Yeah. And that's where we will start to mm. lend money on a bigger scale. The
0: multiplier effect. Multiplier effect. Works beta. in the right direction Absolutely. rather than the wrong direction. Um, okay. Hard question, but everyone wants to know what an expert in this space is thinking... House prices, because you know you have lent to people whose value is linked to house prices, mm. and obviously you do 65% in case house prices fall. In the typical market, Sydney or Melbourne, where you often lend, what do you think is going to be the worst case scenario for house prices?
5: Uh, I preface my comment by saying we are not at a bubble like we were in the GFC, where the market was going to crash under the right circumstances. We've already had a correction 18 months ago. The market's been going up slowly. Again, my crystal ball is probably not as clear as I wanted. I would think in Sydney and Melbourne, if we are out of this in another three or four months, we may look back and see that there was a 5 to perhaps 7% reduction in property, mm. and then I think it'll stabilise and it will pick up from there. Mm. Always remember, Peter, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, we still have a gross undersupply of residential property.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and so far, it looks like the online auctions are actually doing okay. The clearance rate, a lot of property has been taken off the market, uh-huh. but and I think a lot of people are probably saying, well, let's hope this is not seen as a good guide to what's really going on prices. It's just going to be a temporary collapse or, or fall in prices. But any the, of the people who are desperate to sell will probably suffer the consequences of this bad three or six months.
5: Peter, my advice to people, you are correct. We will suffer a small uh, backward movement in prices. Just hang on to the property. Mm. Uh, if you are forced to sell and if you bought it, at a time where prices were high, then notionally there'll be a small loss. But for 98% of people, they will hold the property and they will see it appreciate very, very quickly.
0: Are you potentially affected by the fact that the government is going to stop evictions and be, um, allow rents to be reduced?
5: Peter, I guess I've developed some expertise in the last three weeks mm. because what we see on the news is the headlines. Yeah. But when you look down in the detail, yes, every lender must look at giving a borrower some relief, but there's a furfing in all of that. The lender is not expected to say, you don't have to pay a payment for 12 months and not make it up, or your rent, you don't have to pay it for 12 months. What lenders are doing is, in fact, looking at it and saying, OK, you're in difficulty for the next three months, mm. You don't have to make any payments, but after that, we expect you to pick up some of those by extending the term of the loan. So I think that's a great way of doing it. It helps the borrower, and longer term, the lender will not suffer as well, and the lender's investors.
0: So it's like, effectively, it's a holiday and a cash flow relief from repayments, but those repayments resume. End of the day, the overall value of that proposition remains the same. Absolutely. Just stretched over a longer period. Stretched over a longer period. Okay. Is there anything out there you'd like to say to anyone who who either is committed to an investment and is worried at the moment or is thinking about investing in sort of the areas that you you participate in? What
5: I'd say to people is to make sure that you check everything out thoroughly. Uh, I wouldn't be lending to a business short-term that is affected by the virus. Mm. We spoke about restaurants and travel. Mm. But there are a whole raft of other businesses that are doing as well, if not even better. Mm. Now, we were approached the other day by no names, no pack drills, someone who was in pet supplies. And you can believe this or not, pet supplies is an essential industry. And 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 people
0: are buying pets at the moment, aren't they? And so,
5: again, as a result of being at home, people are spending more time with their pets... So, therefore, more money on them and people who don't have pets are buying them. So, we are looking at a loan application at the moment for a pet supply store. Mm. So, that's important if you're an investor to look at that. Also, look at the processes the manager has to cover off all the other risks, the property uh, and the borrower's capacity to repay.
0: Okay. Well, John, thanks for joining us on the program. Let's hope this period is very short.
5: Let's hope so, Peter. Thank you.
0: Well, that's the show, Paul. Do you think next week we'll be talking about the coronavirus? I
2: regret to say, Peter, I still think we'll be talking about the coronavirus next week. But by yeah. next week, we'll be coming up and starting the fifth week of the lockdown. So uh, mm. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure. Victorian schools went back uh, this week. Um, you know, they're still being done online. But, mm. uh, you know, still be another week of school holidays in New South Wales and I think other parts of the country. So it may not be till the week after yeah. we get something. But I don't think they're going to be able to resist too long, Peter.
0: Uh, I'm fascinated that Austria is now, this week, is opening up small shops, end of the month, plan on department stores, and then if that all works out, they'll be thinking about cafes by the middle of May. So I guess if Europe can do it, and, and Austria and Denmark are, are doing it now, none of those companies have, countries have done it as well as us when it comes to beating the infections and the, and the death rates. So let's keep our fingers crossed. Maybe inside eight weeks we'll be approaching normalcy. Approaching. Not there, but approaching. Woo!